Be glad, you righteous, and rejoice in the Lord. Shout for joy, all who are true of heart. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I'm glad to be with you all at Trinity this morning on the first Sunday in Lent. I don't get to do the great litany in a liturgical procession very often, not even every year. It always feels like we're wrapping the congregation in prayer. It's a journey, like the journey of our lives, on which we need God's help day by day, year by year, in good times and in bad, in days when it seems all is hopeful, and the days when there are challenges. It's so good to be here with you today as we have prayed and lifted up each other in this way. Now, we just came from Diocesan Council in Galveston, and I want to call attention to the fact that two of your priests, Hannah and Luz, were elected as deputies to the 2024 General Convention. It is a sign of the respect in which they individually are held by the members of the diocese, but also a sign of the of where Trinity, the way Trinity is held in our common life as a diocese, the honor and respect that we have for you and for your ministry and for the, the long history of Trinity in uh, Houston in the life of this diocese. While we were there, I want to call attention to, your fa to you the fact that we heard about another long ago deputy to General Convention. Uh, Episcopal News Service ran a story this week about Thomas Kane. And the story is about how they've located Thomas Kane's grave there in Galveston. It had long, the location had long been forgotten. Now you all may not know who Thomas Kane is. Thomas Kane was the first vicar of St. Augustine's Episcopal Church in Galveston. And Cain was born in, um, in, into slavery in North Carolina and came here to be vicar of that church and was a person of great um, respect and admiration in the community on Galveston. In 1889 and in 1892, the Diocese of Texas elected Cain as the first alternate to General Convention. And so he went and represented us, our diocese, at General Convention, the first African-American deputy to General Convention in the Episcopal Church. And he, while there, got to sit on, uh, sit on the floor, so he took his place as an actual deputy, not just an alternate, and represented us. In 1900, he died in the great storm, the great hurricane that hit Galveston killing about 6,000 people. But his body was found, and unlike many who were burned because there were so many dead, he was given a, a, uh, a significant place in the graveyard. But over time, the location of his grave was lost. And so the churches in Galveston, a, a, a map was found in an antique store that 
said where the graves were. And, uh, and so the, the three Episcopal churches in Galveston have, been, have raised money to put a new headstone on his grave so that his identity and his importance in the life of that community and the life of our diocese might once more be recognized. And I tell you this not just because Hannah and Luz are now going to go and walk in Thomas Kane's footsteps as deputies representing Texas in general convention, but because identity is at the heart of the readings today and at the heart of Jesus's experience in the wilderness with the, de with the devil. Now, many of my uh, favorite TV shows do this thing. It's called the previously on thing. You may be familiar with it. I think I first saw it on Lost. You know, one or two minute recap starts the show, highlighting earlier scenes to orient the viewer to the current drama. In Jason Middle's essay, Previously On, he names this as a signature technique enabling the complex storytelling of 21st century dramas. Over the past 25 years, he writes, various shows explore serialized forms and non-conventional storytelling strategies, such as intertwined flashbacks and shifting narrative perspectives and broken timelines that have been um, previously quite rare within mainstream American television. You see, previously on helps the viewer catch up. Though they may have been rare on TV, shifting narrative perspectives and broken timelines have been elements of the church's reading of scripture for millennia. Now, seriously, we arrived today with Jesus' temptation. Having last uh, heard the previous part of the story weeks ago at the beginning of Epiphany at Jesus' baptism, I think it was around January 8th or 7th or something. It was a long time ago. We heard what just what happened right before this story. Our almost bite-sized readings are perfect for worship and for moving through the seasons of the liturgical year. We always read this reading on the first Sunday in Lent or it's parallel in some other gospel. We always hear about Jesus' temptation on the first Sunday in Lent. But reading this way can cloud developing meaning which nourishes our faith and confirms our identity. What I'm trying to say to you is that the way we read scripture in church can be confusing, right? So today we hear this old, old story again. A story about Jesus's identity so important, our identity as people, as Christians and as church, that we would do well to begin by looking back. And so, here's my previously on the Gospel of Matthew. Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her betrothed, stuck with her, told in a dream that the child would save his people from their sins. 
Later, wise men visited after the birth and King Herod was jealous and scared and sent soldiers to eliminate the rival. And so Joseph and Mary fled with the son Jesus to Egypt until it was safe. At which point they returned to Israel to be with their people. Remember, those were the people that this son is supposed to save from their sins. When Jesus grew up, John the Baptist began calling the people to repent of their sins, telling them that someone was coming after him who would baptize them with the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that was with Mary when she became impregnated with Jesus. Now when Jesus went to John to be baptized, he saw the Spirit of God Yes, that same spirit. If I had a camera, you could see it. There would be pictures that tied all of them together. That same spirit descending like a dove and alighting on him. A voice from heaven said, This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. When the scene opens in today's gospel, Jesus and the Spirit are familiar to us. They've been together through this story. They're familiar to us not just on their own, but in their interactions with each other. Since before his birth, this Spirit has been bringing Jesus to the scene of his baptism, to, re to the revelation of Jesus' identity as God's beloved son and to the gateway of the wilderness. Which brings us to this portion of the story we read today. The spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness on a desert quest, a 40 day fast. Jesus went into the wilderness with that voice from heaven still ringing in his ears. The proclamation defines Jesus's identity. You are my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is God's son, the son who brings God pleasure. Not just Jesus, an individual somewhere out there self-defining, but Jesus in relationship with God who uses possessive language for Jesus. The Spirit then drives Jesus, drove Jesus into the wilderness with this identity to ponder. Time and space to encounter the deep truth of who God is and who Jesus thus must be. Now when we hear of the devil's arrival to tempt Jesus, I invite you to hold on to this question of how Jesus has come to understand his identity. Satan comes to test Jesus' commitment to that deep discovered truth of what it means to be God's beloved son in whom God is well pleased. Satan's attempt, Satan attempts to distort Jesus' identity by undermining his confidence in his father's nature. 
And so we read of three temptations, stones to bread, daring and dramatic feats, and the gift of power. Each of these invite Jesus to discount his relationship with his father, to discount his identity as beloved son. That's what the temptations are about. They're about Jesus being someone other than who he is. Jesus responds in a grounded self-awareness. What does it mean to be son if you're Jesus? To be son means to be intimately connected to the father. He says that his identity is not determined by what he can do based on his gifts or prerogatives, but by being in relationship. Not by bread alone, but by every word God speaks, he says. You see, bread can only get you so far. What the devil promises is of no lasting value. God's word, however, gives true life. What does it mean to be the son of God? To be son means to be in a relationship of mutual love, committed to the same ends, not to demand God to be at my beck and call. What does it mean to be son? Son is not a relationship to be traded for wealth or power. You see, God is prepared to give Jesus what's needed for the plans God has made. And to be part of that mission is Jesus's identity as son. Again and again, <clears throat> Jesus faces the same kinds of temptations that we face. Promises that if we do this, we'll be more secure, more influential, more happy, more life will be more pleasant. But each one requires us to turn away from our identity as God's children. Jesus emerges from his time in the wilderness stronger as he is grounded in a sense of mutuality. His identity as son is entirely interwoven with God's nature and identity. And that relationship undergirds Jesus' whole journey from desert to the cross and from the cross to the resurrection. Jesus showed us in his encounter with Satan how his relationship with his father clarified who he understood himself to be and became a firm defense in the face of temptation. Our relationship with Christ and with each other in the church can provide the same sort of shield. Our collect today truthfully captures our condition, beset by many sins, are we not? Beset by many temptations, we pray that God will strengthen us and keep us. We struggle against devious enemies, the voice telling us that we have to hustle for approval, as Brene Brown writes, the inclination to measure our value by our stock of influence, power, or money, and far worse, the lure to know who we are by scapegoating someone else. 
I stand here to remind you that you don't have to say yes to any of those temptations. I stand here to remind each of us that we are beloved children of God. You are a child whose parent treasures you just the way you are. Our lives don't always move in a linear fashion, just like the stories on TV, just like the way we read the scripture. Sometimes we meet, move forward confident that we're walking on God's path. And sometimes we wander around like we did this morning, in and out, pleading with God, hoping that we might glimpse God somewhere to help us through our present challenge. Lives don't always move in a linear fashion. And so sometimes we may need a previously on your life. Remember that God created you and loves you. Remember that in baptism, you were anointed as God's own and marked by the Holy Spirit, who is there to guide you wherever you go. Remember, you are a beloved son, daughter, child, whom God created redeemed and sanctifies. This Lent, spend some time in the desert remembering who God is so that you might know truly who you are, created, redeemed, and saved. Amen.